Well, good evening. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program um, here at the London School of Economics. And I want to welcome you all to the latest in our series of lectures on movement, protest and social change. And as I hope you can see from the flyers which you've got, um, the series continues uh, next term. And what we've tried to do as this term is bring together prominent activists and also eminent scholars to discuss this theme. And tonight we have a very eminent scholar indeed, and it's a tremendous pleasure to introduce to you Professor Craig Calhoun, our director here at the London School of Economics. Um, I think... <laughs> I like the group that applauds before you speak. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that makes... Uh, Craig, such an admirable fit with the LSE, is the exceptional range of areas um, in which he's been engaged, range of areas in the social sciences. Um, and I don't propose to go through that discipline by discipline tonight, but I do just want to mention three broader characteristics of his work, which I think are salient for the lecture we're about to hear. First of all, he's a public intellectual. Public intellectual not just in the sense of being in the public eye, but also in the sense that he sees such the importance of the role of intellectual work in serving the public weal. Secondly, he's a historically informed social scientist. He combines, I think, the historian's suspicion of claims that all is new and being remade under the sun with the social scientist's concern with understanding the causes of things, something <laughs> which we here are familiar with. And thirdly, he has an enduring interest in radicalism and radical social movements, something which he shares both with Ralph Miliband, whose work and influence uh, we commemorate with this lecture series, and also, indeed, in a broader sense, with the founders of the London School of Economics themselves. Well, for over three decades... Professor Calhoun has been wrestling with questions about social protest and social movement. And he's brought together the fruits of that labour in his book, his latest book, The Roots of Radicalism, which I hope you'll see is outside uh, if you'd like a copy. And that is the topic that he's going to be talking to us tonight. So I ask you to join me in welcoming our lecture tonight, Professor Craig Calhoun. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you all for being here, and let me begin by saying what an honor it is to, well, it's an honor to do almost everything I get to do at the LSC, but it's a special honor to be involved in the Ralph Miliband program. Ralph Miliband was one of the great intellectuals of the middle and second half of the 20th century, part of the sort of firmament of major figures as I was a postgraduate student and a young scholar entering on my early work, and uh, um, it's quite extraordinary to have uh, grown up into the old person who gets to give the <laughs> Ralph Miliband lectures. So this is a delight, and let me plunge into it, because what I want to do is um, not so much tell you about my book, which is, in a way, about the 19th century, but about the way we think about radicalism and movements, and I'll touch on something from the book, but I want to talk in a way that um, is, in a sense, overlapping the last part of the book and thinking more generally about the issue of movements and how they matter in social change. 
I'm going to guess that when we think about social movements, that this is what we think of most of the time. We think of the range of different kinds of public events. And you're going to be able to guess where most of these places are, know for sure, and be able to think about the people who are involved. You probably are some of the people who are involved in some of these and have a direct familiarity with the range of this. You've certainly seen it on television. You've certainly followed parts of this kind of activism. All of these are protest events. And one of the things that I want to speak about is the relationship but also distinction between protest events and social movements. So the most visible face of movements to most of us most of the time is those sorts of big crowd-based protest events. And they're part of a story that they're not all of. They're ubiquitous right now. We're in an era when there are a lot of these and they're all over. And I'm going to suggest, among other things, that that's not historically unique, that this is a recurrent pattern too, and try to explore a little bit about how to think about movements in that sense. Now, in the series of pictures that I gave, which came from all of those cities, note how strongly students and young people, mainly white, in big cities shaped those pictures, which I should think felt sort of naturally a picture of social movements around us. But there are really different ones. The workers striking at the Lanmin Platinum uh, mine outside of Johannesburg are a different picture of movement activity, fit into different kinds of narratives and not quite the same stereotype in various ways. The protest movements of our period are interesting on a lot of fronts. Right? One of them is that they involve innovative tactics in protest and a variety of ways in which protest movements uh, produce visual images, produce grasp people's memories, engage in um, efforts to keep competing with each other for attention, for media, and all of this, um, and keep coming up with the tactics. My personal favorite of the recent ones um, is the kissing in Chile, right? the idea of a protest that would just aggravate people to death by kissing in the streets and um, making this part of a broadly a student protest originally occasioned by sort of neoliberal reforms in universities and fee structures, but with a broader remit and so forth. Among the points that can be made here is that one of the ways in which we can read movements wrongly is to read them completely instrumentally, to read them as though they are only about tactical efforts to achieve certain sorts of political or economic or other objectives and miss the extent to which they can be fun. Social scientists contribute to that. I've contributed to that myself by using phrases like social selective incentives to describe what we really mean when we say movements can be fun. That is, it's nice to be with other people out doing these things, and that itself shapes it. This is one of the first lessons I learned about social movements during the brief period at the end of the 1960s when I was a part of the SDS and um, had to wrestle with my conscience because I knew that this was partly a deep political commitment and partly that the protests were the best place to meet girls. <clears throat> now, some of the same kinds of people turn up everywhere in movements and have an interesting symbolic place in it. This guy, for example, Guy Fawkes, um, is a recurrent character um, who shows up and reveals to us some of the sort of symbolic politics of the movements 
an interesting historical analogy that is probably potentially more potent in Britain, but these pictures were from um, different countries where Guy Fawkes appeared. And here's a guy, an older guy, um, who also has been a ubiquitous figure in social movements, um, appearing in this case um, in North Africa. Now, the Che Guevara um, stencils, the Guy Fawkes masks, all of these things have various sorts of meanings. In these cases, they're pretty transportable symbols. And one of the things they are clue us into is the global fluid character of these movements. These movements also have more local sides. Notice the national connection to Che in this particular setting and the um, extent to which I think you can't interpret the movements of the Arab Spring as simply sort of tokens of a global type. They are very situated movements. They are national. They're even national in the sense to which one of the features of the Egyptian version of the Arab Spring was, how could those Tunisians do it first? We're Egyptians. Where's our national pride? We should be out protesting. We should be leading the way in this sort of action. So movements have a national and an international character, sometimes an intensely local character. There are symbolic forms that circulate in these movements, and they help to clue us into some of the meanings. And in modern forms, but I will suggest very briefly, throughout the modern history of social movements, they're very visual. One of the things that we miss about movements with the more or less completely instrumental accounts is the extent to which movements work with visual symbolism and iconography and have throughout modern history. That's not my main theme tonight, but it's sort of worthwhile noting, and it's not just from the era of TV. Now, protests do manifestly play to global media, um, and they are shaped by global media, and they're responsive to global media in various ways. Um, we can get any number of versions of this. They have in common with many treatments of visual um, phenomena that there are titles. That is, there's a framing process. This is like going to the museum, looking at a Kandinsky painting, and then looking at the title and saying, oh, that's what it was. Right? Here you're told, people from all walks of life are protesting, regardless of age, gender, or religion. That's a message net of the photograph, the visual imagery here in Al Jazeera's account of Tahrir Square and what's going on. Right? There are other versions of playing to the media, and they encourage various um, responses from the international media. In the case of the Arab Spring, it encouraged a response in much of the world that made this seem more interpretable in completely Western or global Northern categories, missing some of what was going on. It made it look like it was all about us. It was actually reassuring to a variety of people in, the, in Europe and the United States uh, to think that this was a Facebook revolution. Right, it was made possible by our technology, our software. We actually are doing it, and they are on the path of progress that we want them to be on which was actually a misleading interpretation in many ways, misleading in the first place about where the agency was, who was making these protests and to what extent with their own understandings in mind, but also misleading about this sort of simple progressive understanding of this. Police are actually important actors in movements. Police have been colluders in movements in significant ways, usually inadvertent, I think, but so often that it's not clear to me that it's always inadvertent in this, that police will 
help protesters win sympathy. This is an Occupy Wall Street protest, um, as is this. That police action um, lends itself to the photograph, lends itself to certain accounts, gets played into other narratives. This is not Wall Street. This is the University of California at Davis. That is a university um, setting where these students who are sitting down are being sprayed with mace um, by a sort of gratuitously aggressive police officer on the orders of uh, the chancellor of the University of California at Davis um, to get rid of the students. Now, there are a variety of bits of this story, and believe it or not, all of this is just meant to be introduction to a slightly more densely argued account of this. One of them is that protests depend on spaces, relatively free spaces in which to do things. So the very visible protest activity depends on public squares, depends on university campuses, which are not as intensively policed in many ways, usually, this is an exception, depends on an opportunity to seize these free public spaces and repurpose them in the course of protest. And where these are eliminated or eroded or made subject to new kinds of surveillance, as indeed in London, um, this becomes an issue for the future of protest. Another part of the story is that the protests that evolve evolve in a sort of codependent relationship to the authorities who are being protested in various ways. They're never explicable entirely from inside. They're always in a back and forth, an interactive relationship with those being protested or the forces of order who are trying to police the protests and so forth. Not least in this sort of introductory little quick tour to just evoke protest and get it in mind, we should remember that protests are not always on the left. There are a variety of different protests. One of the issues for the academic study of social movements and contentious politics is that academics are very over-selective for movements that they like. They tend not to select as much for movements they don't like, so not as much for the Tea Party, for nationalists in China, for people who are engaged in active protest, not for these folks in British politics. That the academic study of social movements is written by people sympathetic to social movements and disproportionately to certain sorts of social movements, and this shapes what's going on. Now, studies of protests are skewed then, and they're skewed by what the researchers like. Lots of coverage of these guys. Researchers immediately sympathetic. Don't sell education. Now, let me begin into the argument, having introduced visually a bunch of stuff, a little bit more of a set of claims that wouldn't be simply familiarization. And the first one is, question form, is a protest a movement? And I mean by that, as you would guess from the rhetorical question, that it's not. It's not obvious that a protest should be called a movement. We tend to do that. It's not obvious how to think about protests. Is this protest, for example, part of a movement? What movement? It's mainly a protest occasioned by um, the government cuts in England. It's partly free Gaza. It's a variety of different things. How do we think about that? I'm going to go try to just, in a very superficial way, untangle a little bit of that. But the punchline is simply, 
it is typically the case that protests now are multivocal, that they have multiple messages interacting. Sometimes they are clear alliance structures. Several different groups get together, and lots of major modern protests that go on today are made by multiple different groups. It's actually rarer to find a protest that has a single sponsor. There are TUC protests or others that have a major group, but almost always behind these are, in fact, lots of collaborating groups. But it's not just that. It's that it's very difficult to contain the message because there are people who want to get out their other message. This is actually organized by people with one message, people with the sort of turquoise signs, and then there are and the no-cuts message. This is a no-cuts protest. Right? There are simply people who are piggybacking on the no-cuts protest with a variety of other issues. And that's the norm. That's not an exception in modern protests. It's the way it works. And I'm going to suggest that's actually a little older, too. But again, a movement. This is taken outside my former apartment in New York. Um, the, I felt that this was a protest uh, that I immediately identified with until it occurred to me that I was probably the target of this protest. <laughs> the, it's actually an offshoot of Occupy. It's while Occupy came up to Washington Square. Right. Now, the idea of a social movement is an important idea, I'm going to suggest, that is incompletely linked up with protest. We speak sometimes interchangeably, or sometimes we make protest into an adjective, a protest movement. But I think this is complicated. The idea of a social movement should communicate to us something more than protest, something more than mobilization, opposition, challenge. Lots of academic sociology and political science of social movements in recent years has assimilated them to contentious politics. He said, this is a form of contentious politics. And I'm going to touch on that and suggest, yes, but more than that. More than that, partly because the kissing was fun. Partly because I could be going, the ubiquitous soundtracks, the movements. This is more than politics. There's other things going on culturally and affectively in movements. But partly, this is more than strategic instrumental action. And it gains its effect and its impact from being more than simply strategic instrumental action. A lot of the literature is focused, if you will, on how-to. That is, how did people get mobilized? How did messages get out? How did all of those people get those turquoise signs? And so forth and so on. So there's a whole literature that is basically interested in the mechanics. It assumes that people are normally going about their business, that it's unusual to protest in some sense, and therefore that the explanatory puzzle is how did they get going? There are other explanatory puzzles. I will have to say that already from my tangential experience of the 1960s, which I alluded to before, that the puzzle that it left me with was where did it go when it vanished? That is, my experience of this was not that of the people who made the 1960s movements, who went to university um, several years earlier than I did, who helped this grow, who are part of the um, early years of the SDS, the Port Huron Statement, the building of the new left, Britain or in the US, and saw something grow and grow beyond their initial imaginings and beyond their ability to control it, exciting at first, worrying sometimes. But then right, it was the experience of someone who grew up with that. I started university in 1969, right, and fairly quickly, 
this peaked, and then it began to fade. It wasn't clear at the time what that meant, but it left a sort of enduring puzzle. How could something seem to be so big, moving everybody, moving people deeply, capturing their emotions, generating their commitment, and then fade away so quickly? And this happens recurrently. The main book that I wrote about protest movement is about the Tiananmen Square movement in China in 1989. And the same sort of story. There's a thrill of the coming about of this. Now, it's going to echo some other themes because it has earlier precursors and so forth. But there's a thrill for the people who plotted to have a little bit of a protest and found it taking root beyond what they expected. Well, we'll go out on April 15th after Hu Yaobang dies, and we will do something for a day. Well, maybe two days. Maybe we could do something again on May 4th. It's a famous holiday and an anniversary. And, we'll do and it takes off, right? Though it becomes scary, and by the end of it, most of the original protagonists are gone. It takes on other meanings and other identities in reaction to the authorities in relation to the TV cameras in a variety of other settings. But it also disappears. The enduring impact of the Tiananmen Square protest may yet turn out to be bringing democracy to China in the long term. But the most substantial enduring impact so far is helping to motivate the government around 1992 to decide to loosen credit and in other ways create the institutional conditions for the dramatic economic takeoff that has made communist China the world's fastest growing capitalist country. Um, that a large part of that turn to decide it was worth taking the risks of making credit easy, of opening up the possibilities of joint venture companies, of breaking down old constraints on labor policies um, and uh, on the ties between uh, residential units and workplaces and so forth. Taking those risks seemed worthwhile when the alternative looked like very challenging political protest. Okay? So the impact of the protest movement is a different kind of movement, a movement of social change with a different course. And what I want to suggest is the way to understand protest movements and all social movements is to situate them in relationship to social change and the very idea of participating in society and the distinctiveness of a sort of participatory society model. That is a model in which you think of ordinary people having the chance to participate, including by going out in protests, and the chance to shape their history but of course, always the challenge that history tends to go places that are not fully anticipated, even by its protagonists. Protests are only one aspect of social movements, moreover. They are literally demonstrations, manifestations, as these words suggest. Charles Tilley recently um, died, alas, like Charles Tilley, a great scholar of social movements, called them wonk displays. Not a very elegant term. What did he mean by this? that part of what's going on with every one of these manifestations, these demonstrations is public, is a demonstration of the group's worthiness. Right? One of the things you'll see, you saw it in Tahrir Square, you saw it in 1989 in Tiananmen Square, is the group performing rituals of orderliness, cleaning up Tahrir Square after the protests, arranging tent encampments in rows or circles that were well-formed so that it showed the capacity of the people who were mobilized to be orderly, to be well-organized, to organize themselves. It's a kind of demonstration. We don't need the government 
to enable us to be orderly, we can do that for ourselves. We're worthy of the opportunity to make our own future. Unity is demonstrated. It's part of the thrill of being in a big protest, losing yourself in the crowd, feeling emotionally the connection to all the people who are there, but it's also a communicative demonstration. The very numbers, since protests are staged by people who generally aren't inside the closed doors of the real um, centers of power, the primary um, way of claiming power is to claim a broader constituency, and commitment. We'll come back and back again and again. We'll be in Tahrir Square every day until the regime falls. Right? So there's a display, it's a performance. And it's very important in the life of movements and not all of it. Protests are relatively ephemeral events. Even the big and relatively enduring ones are ephemeral events. They require a lot more organization than is sometimes thought. So there's sometimes a naive notion of the spontaneous protest. As Edward Thompson, E.P. Thompson, argued long ago, a food riot takes a lot of organization. It's hardly ever the case that major protest events simply happen spontaneously. There's planning, there's organization, people prepare the leaflets, people make the alliance structures with various movements to get everybody to turn out, they plan the event, they circulate the event. It can be done on Facebook, it can be done on paper, it can be done face-to-face, -face, but there's an organizational infrastructure. One of the things that was impressive in 1989 in China is the extent to which that organizational infrastructure was the pre-existing social relations and organizational structure of students. It was their classes in the university. We are the second-year students of Japanese. We are the third-year economic students. We are the postgraduate law students. People marched in contingents like that, and it's very much like trade union marches, if you see them, which are very seldom historically. They are more now, but now they are sort of often Lots of people who just come by tube from different parts of London, they get there and they protest. Historically, trade union marches were almost always organized by different union groups and different locales, carrying the banners of where they came from, right? demonstrating, among other things, that orderliness and that organization, but also the extent to which the non-protest part of their lives gave structure and capacity to the protests that were being staged. They were pageants in an important way that depended on a lot of organization. Now, a key question for movements is how well can they knit together protests and other kinds of activities, other sorts of elements, over the longer term in order to produce social change. Protest by itself almost never produces major social change. That doesn't mean movements don't, but the protest has to be coupled with other things. So in the remainder of this talk, I have five points which I'll foreshadow. Among other things, in case I run out of time, you'll know where I was headed. Right? Movements have multiple time scales. Movements are not just ephemeral events. Right? They have multiple time scales. Movement activism comes in waves. Right? And it comes in waves not just within movements, but across movements in general in societies. And what happens between waves is crucial. The illusion of the protest movements and all those pictures I showed at the beginning, but some of the illusion for many ordinary participants is that this all happens very suddenly and not very connected to previous histories. But in fact, movements typically are um, in wave structures and between the waves, lots of work is done. What makes possible each phase of a movement, 
or shadow, is in large part work that was done when the movement wasn't very visible in between. And this is key activist work. This is where relatively dedicated activists keep movements and memory alive between the moments of high activity. Or I could put this another way in Gramsci's terms. Remember Gramsci's distinction of the war of maneuver and the war of position. There's a hell of a lot more war of position than war of maneuver. That is, much more time is spent in that position. Fourth, or third, rather, waves have long been international. What we saw in the last couple of years, my pictures documented, is actually common to modern movements. It becomes more true. They're more and more international, but they've been international for a long time. This is not all new. Fourth, movements seldom win immediate victories. I already pretty much said that, but they do shape history. And fifth, Movements are basic to participatory society. They are a normal part of participatory society, not an abnormal thing, to be explained as that. They are basic in ways that often influence state policy, but often work outside the state through culture in the public sphere. Now, multiple timescales. What do I mean? There are events. As I've said, events can mislead us because they look more spontaneous than they are. There are campaigns for want of a better word, they are putting together a whole phase of this, a year of activity, two years of activity, and so forth. These are almost always the product of social movement organizations. It's almost impossible to carry out um, a campaign, a concerted action for a period of time without strong organizational infrastructures, which means that you have leaders. Increasingly in the modern day, you have more or less professional leaders. That is, you have people whose jobs it is to do this work, people who work for purpose, which just opened its London office, or a variety of other organizations of this kind. Um, and there's a directed role in this. And that goes way back, goes back to the whole history of the trade union movement, socialism, and so forth. And there are longer histories like those with recurrent phases of intense activism, trade unions, socialism, also have this pattern. What happens in the spaces between the campaigns is key to the long-term impact. Part of what can happen is fading away, a failure to reproduce from phase to phase. But the real action for the movements that have the enduring impact is the ability to reproduce between the periods of high activism. Part of what happens is, in fact, social science research, which helps to keep the movements alive, advance the tactics, deepen the understanding. When does Marx, as it were, retreat into the British Museum reading room in order to do the work that culminates in writing capital and changes social science? After the defeats of 1848, Marx retreats. Marx fills the space between movements right, with an intense period of deepened study, between 1848 and 1871, basically. Or again, what are Sidney and Beatrice Webb up to in founding the London School of Economics. Well, among other things, they are up to establishing some of the staying power that keeps movements moving between the periods when there are big popular efflorescences. If movements were only protests, you would win or lose in the moment of high activism. But in fact, movements are histories. The histories are made in part by the way in which there's continuing work on issues, in which there's training, for new people, in which there's memory, in which the very memory of the movement that has gone before is passed on to new generations. And then, of course, the webs are also in the business of participating 
in a movement in a different way, not centered on protests, but centered on building the state and building capacity in the state to be able to do the work of building a different kind of society. Now, we should not confuse any one protest for the movement, I've suggested. So, for example, we could speak of any anti-war protest, a protest against the invasion of Iraq, for example. Any sort of anti-war protest as an event, something like the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which basically took off in the late 1950s in a fairly short arc, a campaign from 58 to 61 that was active, memorable. I was a child, but many of you will remember it. The Ban the Bomb movement, the first period of this. Um, the Committee of 100 in Britain. The resurgence of this campaign in 1979 and the early 1980s, a period when E.P. Thompson became a central figure, not doing social history, but making history in the anti-nuclear campaign, the anti-nuclear weapons campaign, and the women of Green and Common, in a way, fuse feminist activism and peace activism, making a central moment in the movement. Right? So all of that sort of campaign, but then there's a much larger and longer peace movement and, as I suggest, an intersection with other movements like feminism. So we've got these at least three different timescales going on. Or, again, take the charter, made famous by the Chartists, the People's Charter um, that dates from 1837-38, William Lovett, and the proposal that's there. So here is the biggest wave of protest of the first half of 19th century Britain, the biggest wave before the organization of Britain's modern political parties, before the organization of the trade union movement, before most of the structures that will be the enduring features of British politics in the present day. Right? What are the proposals that are being struggled for right, in the 1830s? Universal suffrage, no property qualification to vote, annual parliaments, Equal representation, that is no sort of rotten boroughs and highly unequal um, electoral districts, and payment of members vote by ballot, the famous six points. Right? The six points, four of the six points get enacted, and it takes right, a very long struggle to make this happen. The Chartists don't succeed in winning the Charter, but they do succeed in shaping a history in which many of the points of the charter will get one in due course. Right. Second point about movements coming in waves. Right. We tend to think of movements, like much else, as simply building. When we narrate the history of it, we read back in the history and we say, here were various forefathers or foremothers, here's the activism, and it sort of seems to grow in a cumulative path. But the actual histories are almost always wave patterns, periods of very high activity and periods between them. In each wave, it is typical that there are multiple movements. Remember I said that for all these movements today, using that one slide as an example, it's almost always the case that a number of different groups are campaigning at the same time and in some tension with each other trying to claim the same protest for different goals. Here's a protest against cuts. No, wait, it's free Gaza. Okay. That's actually the normal pattern in this. There are lots of movements, varying degrees to which they coalesce. This is significant in terms of semi-academic studies, or academic studies of social movements, by, because of its relationship to a misleading idea called the idea of new social movements. This is an idea that was produced basically in the wake of the 1960s era protests. The notion was that there was an old social movement, the labor movement, 
and it had gotten old, literally, and the new social movements, vaguely linked to the new left, had other characteristics. And by the 70s and 80s, these other characteristics were being described. The new social movements were movements that were plural. There were a bunch of them. There wasn't just a social movement. They were movements that were self-limiting. People didn't actually have the vision of completely remaking society, just changing a bit of it. That they were movements that were highly innovative in tactics instead of stable. Now, we could go on with the story of the new social movements linked to thinkers like Alain Turenne and Alberto Malucci, but the important point is it's sort of an illusion. It's about movements during the period when they're new and not coalesced into a larger structure. It's not a new kind of movement that arose in the 1980s or something. It is rather that movements have a cyclical pattern of being new, highly diverse and plural, lots of different things going on in eras of effervescent action, right? the 60s. Lots of things happening. I will come to that one particularly. And then some of them achieve a certain amount of dominance, but almost never as much as we tend to read back into their stories historically. That is, they're almost never that dominant. There was no point in modern European history, for example, when the labor movement was simply the social movement that dominated everything. There were always other movements going on. The closest to that was the post-war boom years that we actually think of as among the least movement-oriented times when labor unions were relatively stably being integrated into governments, from the Attlee government forward in Britain, for example. So movements in these high-activity periods influence each other, they disseminate tactics, they compete for adherence and attention. One chapter of my book focuses partly on the interaction between socialist and religious thinkers and other kinds of movements. For example, a great debate that was held between Robert Owen, the great British socialist, Alexander Campbell, a key figure of American frontier religion, a circuit-riding Protestant um, revivalist who held camp meetings. The two of them staged a debate um, in Cincinnati, Ohio. These were great days for debates because without the aid of microphones, they spoke for four hours to a crowd of 10,000 people um, and the people liked it and came back for five successive days of such debates. Now, this is almost hard for us to imagine, but just note that means it's entertainment, among other things, right? But it's also an interesting debate. The debates are transcribed. They're transcribed because um, sorry, Greg, the founder of the Greg's shorthand system, was himself a... Um, resident in the New Harmony, Indiana commune, which at the time was an Owenite socialist commune, though at other times it was a religious commune and in other things. And in fact, Greg converted in the course of this, but also transcribed the events in his new shorthand technique. And the debates are interesting. For example, the evangelical minister argues for the equality of the sexes, which is denied by Robert Owen, the socialist. Right? You have other things going on in the debate. So the alignments in the pictures are being shaken up. This is typical in this. And there's a lot of competition. Right? This is essentially, who are you going to join in this period? Well, let's talk about three waves really quickly in this. There is a wave in the late 18th and early 19th century in Britain, which manifests 
this pattern in many ways. Radical republicanism was probably, if you had to pick one movement or one ideological structure, the central one, linked to figures like Tom Paine, the famous debates of Tom Paine with Edmund Burke, um, and the work that Tom Paine did in the context of the American Revolution and then in Britain and, of course, in France. So radical republicanism of this kind traveled. Paine himself traveled, right? Paine is British. He goes off to America, becomes a key figure in the American Revolution. He returns to Britain, then goes to France, where he's made an honorary citizen in France, and he's active in the revolution, which isn't quite radical enough on democracy for his taste, right? This goes on, um, and is an international figure in this. Um, indeed, at some point in this, he says, um, I have no country but the world and no religion but doing good. Right? So he articulates a kind of LSE cosmopolitanism um, that could have been voiced in um, the 1990s or the present day. But at the same time, there are other movements. The anti-slavery movement has its first great flowering in this period. There's been opposition to slavery before. Various people have said slavery seems like a bad thing. But the first really significant organized wave of anti-slavery agitation takes place. It takes place with John Wesley in the four, linked to the what will become Methodist religion in this context, a large-scale spread of Wesleyanism. Figures like Wilberforce as a sort of respectable parliamentarian radical who's leading part of this, the anti-slavery movement flowers particularly from the 1790s up to 1806 when there's a major um, campaign um, that moves it. We'll visit this again. Catholic emancipation is a big issue. Um, we have the early versions of the campaign for the right of Catholics. In England at this time, Catholics could not vote, and Catholics suffered a variety of other civil impairments in the country. Um, so this is, there's the beginning of a significant campaign to try to win civic equality for Catholics, and for Catholics you should understand Irish in very large part and see this as linked to a kind of internal colonialism that is being practiced in Great Britain. This is a period that could be cited, there are other cases, as one of the births of feminism. Feminism gets born many times, and in the several early births, there's not a lot of continuity between the births. Part of when we know that feminism is taking off is when feminism, or the women's movement, becomes able to narrate its own history. That is, it's no longer sort of starting over with various founding mothers who can be celebrated by later women's historians. Oh, here was a nun in 15th century Austria who was in some ways a precursor. The difference between a precursor and a founder is figuring into a more continuous narrative. And Mary Wollstonecraft's work in writing the rights of women in response to Tom Paine is, in fact, um, as close to a durable starting point as you're likely to pick for this. It's interesting, again, note, it's a pamphlet written in response to another pamphlet by a differently defined movement. Paine has written the rights of man, um, central to the democratic activism. Wollstone doesn't so much disagree about the rights part, but the leaving out of women, the failure to articulate this, and it's a, a contest in the movement for adherence and for debate. There are multiple smaller movements, the Luddites, right, just five years after the peak of the anti-slavery movement, 1811, the Luddites craft radicalism generally, very big deal. There are lots of movements that haven't yet become trade unionism, they haven't yet become a working class movement in a strong sense, but they are bringing a combination of economic and political grievances, 
resisting early capitalism in important senses, usually not articulating anything like socialism, but articulating resistance to capitalism. And there's the birth of modern conservatism, for Burke is a salient founder to a movement that actually has a similar wave pattern moving through the modern world, building a kind of conservative thought that will coalesce in various ways. There's another wave in the US, a generation later, associated with what's often called the Second Great Awakening. That term is going slightly out of fashion among historians, but a period of great religious revival, right? Um, as there had been one in the 18th century. This includes a variety of things. The birth of Mormonism, Mitt Romney's religion, now a major, more or less respectable global religion. I say more or less because it's debated intensely in the election, and a variety of conservatives may not have turned out to vote in equal numbers because Romney was not an evangelical Christian but a Mormon. But this is an indigenous American religious tradition that grows up in a period of huge revival. In this period of revival, there are lots of revival ministers, Lyman Beecher, a whole variety of people who are out. Um, there's camp meeting religion, emotional enthusiasm, religion as the entertainment in town. Um, in this, um, low church Protestantism takes off in big ways around the country. Right? It's a shopkeeper's millennium in the title of one famous history book about this, the sort of lower middle class um, is at the center of this. The American small property holder, in various ways, figures crucially um, in this takeoff of religion. But this takeoff of religion is related to other things, related to a mass anti-Catholic sentiment, so that actually at a very time when there is a peak in Catholic um, enfranchisement campaigns in Britain, in the US, there's an anti-Catholic campaign. This is a leitmotif of American history, generally not narrated into it. It will culminate in the founding of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, recall, was founded to get rid of Catholics. It later added blacks to the list. Well, it's also get rid of them, right? But the original problem was Southern European and Irish immigrants and Catholicism in America. Right? The Second Great Awakening influences other things it influences the anti-slavery movement, which takes off in new ways as the Protestant ministers begin to define slavery as a national sin and tell their followers that if you participate in any way in the life of the country, you share personal culpability and eternal damnation whether you own slaves or not because you're sharing in the wealth of the country that is based in some part on this immoral kind of exploitation. It helps to precipitate the Civil War so that major parts of the run-up to this, the, um, the radical abolitionist movement, the um, uh, John Brown and things like this, is driven by religious fervor in the context among both slaves and um, white sympathizers. Religion is prominent, but especially among the white sympathizers in giving an, a boost to the anti-slavery movement that's central to abolitionism. It's also a key period of utopian socialism, I already alluded to. There are Fourierist communes around the United States. You'll remember Charles Fourier, the man who said the oceans would be made of lemonade. Um, and um, the, um, the Owenite movement with Robert Owen's parallelograms of progress, that is, his rationally laid out factories in their highly ordered villages that were going to be um, the pattern for socialism and eventually gave way into the cooperative movement. The Amana movement, Americans will recognize this as an important refrigerator brand, 
but that refrigerator brand descends directly from a utopian socialist communal movement. The Shakers, a variety of others, the Shakers have given their name to a style of furniture, but they don't live on in many numbers because of their refusal to procreate. Um, so there are a variety of utopian socialist movements. The Shakers reveal something about what it means to be a utopian socialist movement by the idea that utopia would come fast enough that you didn't need to procreate. Right? And so this kind of movement, um, it's the opposite of Catholicism, you might sort of say. But in any case, the, um, the temperance movement is another part of this. Again, influenced by religion, but not limited to it, and grows in Britain at the same time, sort of major movement um, disproportionately women, women disgusted with their drunk husbands, women angry when their drunk husbands beat them, women um, convinced that this was producing sins in a variety of different ways, but women also claiming a voice as women, closely linked then to another of the founding moments, the women's movement, the Seneca Falls Convention, at one of the first major public gatherings organized to begin to press distinctively a case of women's liberation, um, overlapping, of course, with temperance and all of that. Now, a more familiar way, a little closer to historical memory, though I'm conscious that it's more my memory than yours, um, in all of this, the 60s. And again, think of the number of different things going on. The civil rights movement reaches its peak, growing throughout the 1950s. The peak actions happen in the 1960s. Things like Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech, the march in Washington. The new left and student movements get going in this, with older roots and a relationship to an older left, a remaking of the left, a movement that takes off criticizing the older movement which, as being, for being not a movement. The basic position of the Port Huron Statement, the basic position that founded the new left, is that the old left had stopped being a movement. It had become institutionalized and more or less conventional. The AFL, CIO, the labor unions were just entering into bargains over, with capitalists over the distribution of income to their members. They were not really campaigning to change society. The new left would transform the unions and engage in a broader social transformation on different grounds. And it would also be grounds that extended beyond the class-based grounds. So this will link to student movements, since by and large, while students will identify as the downtrodden of the earth, they are really the middle classes of the earth, just middle classes in a temporary waiting period um, before um, all of the goods of middle classdom are bestowed on them. It's an era of the peace movement in its anti-Vietnam War incarnation, although overlapping the earlier band the bomb movement, counterculture and new age sorts of things. Everybody's dressed in tie-dye, using various kinds of drugs. Those were the days. Um, the women's movement taking off yet again in another version of this um, in the 1960s with a new and growing kind of activism. We have um, figures like Betty Friedan. We have bra burning. We have a variety of um, early versions of this. We also have a lot of women who, as it were, are put in the back rooms of the male-dominated peace and anti-war movements to lick the envelopes right, and do various sorts of not frontline labor um, in support of the movement while the men go out and give speeches and so forth. This generates women with a grievance who know how to organize because they've, in fact, been doing this in these other movements, as well as sometimes in churches or in labor unions or in various other settings. And one of the things that the previous movements do to each new wave is they generate 
and they sort of give to the next wave some people with organizing experience, people who've been organizing in some other context who then can know how to do a lot of organizational work that newcomers won't. This is a launch of the environment movement. You can trace this in different ways to earlier periods, but this is the first Earth Day um, the, and a wave of environmental activism that will more or less continue with ups and downs in the present day. And this is the takeoff of the charismatic movement, the movement of charismatic Christians, resembling Pentecostals, but often evangelical in their theological structure, but charismatic religion, which will grow enormously influential, which starts off with both left-wing and right-wing versions. The left-wing version stays mostly small in the U.S. and Britain, although in Latin America it will be linked to liberation theology and so forth, but a dominant right-wing version will grow as the new Christian right in the United States later. It's a 60s product, too. So lots of things come out of the wave. They play out over a longer period of time. And, of course, we can see versions of this now, lots of other things, different sorts of movements. All right? Even this. Now, movement waves suggest are international. Right? Even waves of nationalism are international. And you see it right now. Nationalism in many different countries. Nationalism influencing nationalism. You would think nationalists would just look inside their countries for inspiration, but no. They look to other countries for inspiration. They look to other nationalist movements. They share in a variety of ways. And so it has been, so it was in the middle of the 19th century. So it was in the era of World War I. So it is today in this. So let's look briefly at these movements. I just described three waves. Look at the international character. The late 18th, early 19th century, right? The French and American revolutions, radicalism in Britain, the sort of um, 1790s corresponding society era. Think of Haiti as an example, Toussaint Louverture, the revolution that is suppressed. Revolutionary France suppresses the revolution in Haiti. Right? Haiti has the sort of distinction that Toussaint Louverture led military successes against both Britain and France. These two rival empires are both determined to put down the revolution in Haiti. Eventually, France succeeds. But Wesleyan and anti-slavery movements keep growing globally. Right. The medallion that says, am I not a man and a brother, a key slogan of the anti-slavery movement, evoking both the incipient ideology of human rights and the long-standing Christian ideal of brotherhood as two sorts of claims for the anti-slavery movement, is in this case struck by Josiah Wedgwood, the China manufacturer, based on the seal of the anti-slavery society. Um, that is, of course, again, Tom Paine up in the corner. The second of these phases of movements, the Second Great Awakening in the U.S., coincides with the 1848 um, revolutions in Europe. That's actually a Berlin version of it in the picture. Um, and this is significant because it produces lots of immigrants to the United States who found some of those utopian socialist communities, found socialism, found the American magazine for which Karl Marx wrote most of his newspaper work, founded by German immigrants following the 1848 revolution, closely interconnected in various ways, religious revitalization, temperance again, that the, uh, the cartoon, The Drunkard's, uh, Drunkard's Progress, echoing back to Milton and the Pilgrim's Progress and forward to the 10-step movements of the future um, is a part of the temperance movement, which will then recur. The 1960s, we see this again, the peace movement globally, counterculture, rock movement. Um, the um, uh, 
anti-imperialist movements of the era and much of the world women's movements, the Prague Spring, which is in the lower right-hand corner, the Cultural Revolution in each of its meanings, echoing from China. China wasn't so much influenced by what was going on in the rest of the world, but it had an influence on what was going on in the rest of the world in this era in important ways. Fourth point, that movements seldom win immediate victories. I will just evoke with Zhou Enlai's famous um, comment, probably not completely apocryphal, lots of debate about that. When asked by Richard Nixon what he thought of the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. There are, in fact, now accounts of this by people who were there, a person particularly who was there and was a key translator, and who says, actually, it was a confusion. Nixon was talking about 1789. Zhou Enlai was talking about 1968. Um, but in any case, um, right, it's often too soon to tell what's going to be the long-term impact. The anti-slavery and abolition movements won their initial battles, but only after a hundred years of campaigning in this sense. And in the present world, issues of slavery and trafficking of people remain. This hasn't been a complete eradication. Movements participate. The women's movement, lots and lots of victories, lots and lots of setbacks, two steps forward, one step back, as Lenin said in another context, right? A whole history of a variety um, of Campaigns, right? campaigns which have partial success, none of them complete success, the suffrage movement coming closest to a, an outright success in its goals. You get all this. Now, last point, but the sort of core claim I want to make in this. All of this reflects the development of a participatory society. Movements don't just exist because people have grievances, and they don't just exist because they know how to mobilize and organize. People have had grievances throughout history, and there have been slave revolts, and there have been various kinds of activities. But in the modern era, we have a society that is built around participation in different ways, even market institutions that are participatory. Right? They may not be equal, they may not be nice in various ways, but they engage <coughs> lots of people in participating in them. The Reformation brought widespread lay participation. Part of what the Reformation era did in Europe was get people walking 10 miles to hear sermons, get people out actively engaged in a series of debate, get lay people actively engaged. Prior to the Reformation, almost all the major debates in the history of Christianity were primarily among clergy between about the 4th century and the 15th century. Now we get these major debates with lots of lay people participating in them in various ways. It's participatory in a new sense. The written word, we get printed Bibles. We get national states, and national states are organized with a new way of thinking about legitimacy, not simply the inheritance through the king's line, but upward from the people. The state is legitimate if it serves the people, a powerful idea for movements. We get citizen armies, occasionally there are rebellions. We get eventually welfare institutions and welfare states. And throughout all of this, the state is a key support for participation. Part of the story that we should see charted in all those movements I mentioned, and I could make many more of the story, is the growth of the state. All the way right through Cindy and Beatrice Webb, they are on board, they want the state. Right. Anarchists need not apply to the London School of Economics, 1895. This is a project of building an effective state to be able to make social change that way. Most of modern movement history, trade union history, and the history of these movements that I've charted here is in close relationship to the growth of the state as the dominant institution in modern societies. 
Now, there are changes in how society itself gets defined. The word used to mean what it means in the newspapers, and they say the society pages. That used to be all about elites. It becomes about everybody else in various ways. It's famously critiqued by Hannah Arendt. Um, and it's shaped by the idea of taking society as a project, not a found artifact. That is, it's not just there. Society is something we want to make, we want to build, a project of doing better, a way of having progress, right? So in a variety of different settings, movement activists are trying to change the terms of the social contract. They're trying to insist that we can make society over again better. The Jero Crusade, they're saying jobs and dignity. Right. On the hustings, that's actually Covent Garden, by the way, just next to here, um, in the 1806 election, um, which is an election hotly contested, among other things, because it was an anti-slavery and the Wilberforce campaign. There are all these people in the background. It's a popular, Covent Garden was a popular um, uh, constituency in that period. That is, it had lots of voters, um, in a sense. Participation is going. Progress, the expectation of progress and the hope for progress comes. It shapes the whole of this long era when the state is growing. Sometimes it's treated as an inevitable trend and sometimes as a demand for action and often as both. Karl Marx essentially says both. Karl Marx says, the revolution will definitely come. You don't have to worry, but you do have to get out on the barricades. You might ask yourself, well, why do I have to get out on the barricades? Isn't that risky? Can't I just wait for it to come inevitably? But the message is no, of course. You do have to get out on the barricades. And this is common. This is common to a longstanding religious tradition. God will save you, but you have to confess. You have to embrace him. Right? You have to ask, and so forth. So you get both of these being played. And it sets out, the movements in this period set out increasingly to remake the basic conditions of life, asserting that they're being remade anyway, that society is changing, but then asserting we can shape how they're remade. And this becomes a key theme for social science. And movements are definitive in shaping 19th and early 20th century social science. What we inherit as social science, core disciplines and much of what we do, is deeply shaped by relationship to social movements, to the idea of progress, Evolutionary progress in some cases, but often aided by movement mobilization, movement action, religious movements, political movements, economic movements, all sorts. Social reform projects which call forth the desire for and need for social science. This is what the webs are up to, after all. They see social science as an essential means of bringing about the transition to socialism by producing the educated actors who will make this possible in the progressive era. Right? And progress is, is a huge dominant period. It's hard, actually, almost to remember that people didn't always think of it this way. But they often thought of history as cyclical. They often thought of history as fluctuating, up and down and up and down, but not going anywhere. right? Or they thought of it as linear, going somewhere, but where it was going was not necessarily good. The idea of progress had to be sort of linear, but also someplace good that you were going at the end of that. To many people, where things were headed seemed threatening, but more and more people, especially in the 19th century, but really on through most of the modern era, claim a sense of progress. The Works Progress Administration, the WPA, the Roosevelt-era American project of putting people to work in the Depression, is an interesting label of that. It's not just the Works Administration, get a job here. It's the Works Progress Administration. Join the team of progress, get a job. Don't begin to believe 
that just because we've had the largest depression anyone can remember, that somehow the onward march of progress has been derailed. It is Obama's infrastructure plans for spending on growth. It is a variety of similar things through history. Of course, one person's progress can be another's threat. We might remember that the London School of Economics had a significant engagement in the eugenics movement, which was seen as a progressive movement for social change. This happens to be the moment, uh, tomorrow really, of the anniversary of the Beveridge Report, a key and signal moment where a former um, director of the school plays a crucial part in creating the welfare state in Britain, but Beveridge was a lifelong member of the Eugenics Society, campaigning to make society better by making the actual biological people in it better. Progress has met with disillusionment more recently. Nietzschean disillusionment among the more academically and post-structuralist inclined, but various kinds <coughs> of disillusionment. This isn't new either. We should remember, again, the <coughs> 1930s, the eras when there were other disillusioned anti-progress voices who were common, and this goes on. But we face now a variety of different reasons to be worried. For example, to be worried that our best ideas about how to deal with inequality and economic progress problems run straight in the face of our understanding of environmental issues. That we say, no more cuts, austerity is a disaster, it's promoting inequality and human suffering, we need growth. Oh, wait a minute, what about the limits to growth? What about the environmental damage? Not that kind of growth. Right? And we're caught in a dilemma that has gone around and around throughout this period. The ideal of progress has met with a lot of disillusionment. Most of those Western protesters in Zuccotti Park, in um, Syntagma Square, in these various key sites of protest, were disillusioned about progress. Not sure whether they're confident, but in much of the world, it is still the dominant ideology in China. India, Brazil, much of Africa. It's literally a secular ideal, not just about religion, but in world time. Secular means originally temporal, means linear time. Old ways of defining the good by eternal values are out, progress is in, and with progress, the exaltation of ordinary happiness, the idea that value is not transcending material want, but getting what you need to live a good life with your family. So a basic change that goes on in the modern era is a redefinition, at least in Christendom, of a basic way of thinking. It's not about heaven, and it's not about um, all of the ways in which a kind of future of a different life um, offers the solace of putting up with this one. It's about making this life better here and now. It's about movements like the Housewives Alliance for Proper Inspection of Meat. Right? that movement politics becomes lots of different movements, each with various agendas of delivering rather specific goods. The rise of social movements, then, means innumerable projects to better the situation of specific groups in society. Right? Ralph Miliband, in fact, famously distinguished trade union activism from socialism on just these grounds. Trade union activism was a campaign to better the situation of specific groups, union members. Socialism was a campaign to transform society. Collective action to better society as such. But of course, it's not just socialists. There are different versions of that. 
and there are efforts to reshape the institutions of society. We're in a period where I think institutions are at the center. I think much of what is at stake in movements today is the disappearance, the tuttering apart, the unfunding, the damage to institutions. We are feeling more and more that the institutions we depend on for our lives and our welfare aren't there for us in various ways. I evoke this, these are all educational institutions. I particularly like the upper right-hand corner, which is the Chelmsford Working, uh, Workers Education Association marching in pageantry with its band in the front and reminding us that thing, institutions that we take for granted were built in popular struggles, that these were not just all big struggles over big issues, but struggles to build institutions. That was whole house in the upper left, by the way. Now, in closing, Movements work in three ways, and I'm just going to say this really fast. You can come back to it if you want. Some movements work to shape state policy. Think of the webs. Think of Fabian socialism. It is a movement that exists to have its effect by shaping the way state policy is made. Other movements work to create non-state institutions of various kinds. In the heyday of trade unionism in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, it often involved trade union schools, trade union libraries, a whole variety of institutions for workers operated from within the union movement in various ways on the assumption that existing states weren't going to provide those things um, to workers. But there are other non-state institutions, um, the role of churches and religious movements in founding um, schools and hospitals and colleges and so forth. Movements in this sense are a crucial part of civil society. But many movements, finally, achieve their greatest effects by shaping cultural change through public communication. You can't imagine the great successes of the women's movement except as bound up with a transformation of the way people think over a very long period of time through a series of struggles in which the immediate tactical struggles are often lost, but the cumulative effect is one of reshaping culture, perhaps not enough, but rather dramatically in various ways. And this includes changing the very identities and solidarities that people find salient. For example, the extent to which the very identity worker isn't an obvious identity. The beginning of workers' movements is not workers' self-interest. It's workers identifying themselves with that collective self, the working class, deciding that's the important identity, not Methodist. That's the important identity, not woman. That's the important identity, not a particular sectional craft union and so forth. Identity politics doesn't follow from settled identities. It is the politics in which it is determined which identities will be salient and motivate us in struggle. Now, I close with a question. Are states on their way down? Are states losing their salience becoming less significant. Big mobilizations, religious mobilizations, anarchist mobilizations in a variety of these urban areas. If you looked at Barcelona protesters, you would not say, right, the Spanish state, that's the story, right? You'd have a very different vision of how this works. Environmental activism is overwhelmingly aimed at, at lifestyle, only sometimes at policy. Alternative people's economies of barter and new kinds of exchange relations are being formed everywhere. So are other kinds of movements like what's called prepping, 
that is preparing for the end of the state by stockpiling a lot of canned food in the basement um, and um, tanks of gas and kerosene and so forth so that you will be able to survive. A lot of guns usually go along with that um, in these visions, the alternative future. As states suffer fiscal and other crises, they lose a lot of their capacity and they are less and less often the object of movements because nobody's convinced that the states will be able to deliver what the movements want and yet, States were still the main objects of the Arab Spring movements. Europe's fiscal crisis has brought the peculiarity of much less Europeanness. Almost overnight after the 2008 events, people who had been enthusiastically talking about Europe right here at the LSE began to talk about those Greeks. And the Germans are doing this. What about the Italians? It's always that way there, isn't it? Right? Suddenly, it seemed as though national Suddenly, it seemed as though national character was everybody's favorite explanation of what was going on, and the discussion was hugely national, not just in academic settings, but in the movements and in political discourse, in the voice of Angela Merkel, in the voice of the protesters in Greece about Angela Merkel. A return of this, um, it brought a response aimed at states, as though people couldn't figure out how else to pursue their objectives, rather through states, Occupy Wall Street was completely unclear about its targets, but in fact, most of the hopes for grappling with concerted economic power were vested in states, and obviously states are the main part of national movements. I close by leaving that question open because I actually genuinely am not sure what to say. We've had a lot of theorization of the decline of the state. My general view is that most of it is, as was said of Mark Twain's death, premature that it is not at all obvious that states are losing their power. Some states are losing their power. The Greek state is losing a lot of its power. The Chinese state is not losing a lot of its power. That we have a sort of faulty generalization promulgated, and it should reshape the way we think about movements. You don't have to read all of this, but it's from a locomotive fireman's magazine in 1894, where the writer basically says, there are political movements that try to change the structure of politics, and they often leave the social issues untouched. Poverty is still there, inequality is still there, there's just some change in politics. And then there are um, the social movements, right, which manage to change society, sometimes imperceptibly with leaving the political system intact. The women's movement, Right? didn't really transform the political system. Suffrage was predicted to. Lots of people were worried. Women can vote uh, into the world. Right? In fact, it had relatively low impacts until, of course, the recent American election when it was absolutely decisive in Obama's election. Thank goodness. All right. But, says Frank Borland, it happens that political and social movements sometimes become blended and are carried on together. And when that occurs, we have times that try men's souls. Thank you. So I've gone on too long, and I promise to give really short, crisp answers if anyone has any questions. So let's, um, let's see if we've got any people who want to ask questions. I, I think maybe I'll take them in twos to begin with, and you can sort of choose which bits to answer. Can I, can I have an indication of someone who wants to ask something? Uh, so we've got the gentleman at the back, and then um, up, up there, yep. 
So the role of the superstate in movements, you know, for example, what's happened in the Arab Spring uh, with the U.S. and European involvement, uh, what's happening in Syria with the local Turkish and other involvement, and vice versa. So, for example, Sri Lanka, where um, the Tamil movement was sort of subjugated with the help of Chinese arms, for example. These are all examples of... You didn't talk about the sort of super state's role in in movements and... Right. Okay. Okay, Sunil. Greg, uh, just wanted to pick up on the point that you were making historically and <clears throat> perhaps trying to focus it on the urban global south where there's changes in the nature of production, this kind of casualization and informalization of labor, the kind of boring social movements around housing and water supply and so on and so forth where perhaps the uh, adversary is not well defined and therefore the state might become the target. I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Okay. Um, two good questions. I generally don't work with the category of the super state, although I get what is meant and I, I find this perfectly reasonable. Um, that is to say the collusion among multiple states that are organized on an international level and often linked closely to capitalist power and so forth. Um, the... It, reason I don't use it is just that I'm not sure it's quite that singular, but the, the point is a good point in that. And I think that um, lots of power is concentrated and is tightly organized in this way, and it has huge impacts that are usually inchoately conceptualized to be made objects of movement attacks. People, in fact, tend often in movement protests, the Arab Spring is not completely an exception to this, to end up focused on their national state and not on the extent to which their national state is subject to that international determination. They may sort of know about it. Damn Americans, what are they doing to us? But the proximate focus of action um, tends to be local and less effective. Um, and it's one of the um, issues with the widespread expectation that Facebook and Twitter will set us free. Um, that is that um, the new means of communication provided by social media um, will be more powerful than the use of essentially the same media by the power structures of international states and corporations, which use much the same media to organize in other ways. Um, and I think the, the jury is out on that at very best. I would note that in Southeast Asia, in the Arab Spring examples and so forth, these are also examples of several different struggles going on at once. And so if you say the Arab Spring, it was really this, you are probably misleading yourself because it was really several things. You'd have to say this and this and this and this. It's a struggle that is religious in the obvious sense, the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, in the less obvious sense, the struggle with Salafism and the overall shaping of by the um, Sunni Shia struggles in the region so that it's in a complicated long-term religious story in which the immediate moments are um, very specific. It's a trade union struggle. The Egyptian protests in Tahrir Square didn't just spring spontaneously out of nowhere. Central to them were the role of trade unions and workers activists who had been organizing despite illegality and, and attacks by the police for a number of years, and it helps to make it possible in various ways. And of course, then different political groups different neighborhood activism and so forth. I think we have to see um, that, again, the flurries of activism that are so important almost always have several different things going on and no master 
explanation to them because they are the coming together of several different kinds of movement activity that um, matter greatly. Um, in response to Sunil's question about the casualization of labor and about the South, this is not the first time there's been a casualization of labor. Um, it's not as though the rise of the proletariat in Europe um, didn't come with a great deal of the reserve army of labor and the lumpen proletariat and the dangerous classes along the way. The casualization of labor today produced a set of new dangerous classes with a different geography is not unrelated to the casualization of labor um, that went on 200 years ago, producing a different set of like Las Dangerous. And, um, and now that's part of the story, which I would suggest is going to shift um, significant parts of the momentum in these kinds of stories to the global south, where a question is, will this simply make states of the global south targets, sometimes, clearly, as in Egypt, um, or will it make state building in the global south the dominant um, uh, agenda for movement activity? And I would put, in many ways, China and a lot of other examples of this, parts of what's going on in Africa, as state building rather than state attacking. There are certainly state attacking or state critiquing movements in China, but I would say the dominant pattern of mobilization is one that in most ways is seeking um, participation in the Chinese state. It is not seeking to overturn the Chinese state. And um, the modes of participation are various, and the ways in which people wish to steer the state or what they want out of it, stand tall on the global stage and fend off Japan and Taiwan, various kinds of agendas. But I would say, that for the most part, the same thing in Brazil, that by and large, um, while there are exceptions in different sorts of activism on the inter internationally linked anarchism or different things, the majority of activism in Brazil has been state-building activism for the last um, generation or more, and um, continuing right through Lula and his extraordinary motivations, and Dilma, and so forth and on. So that what we see are patterns um, in which those places where the states are strengthening, um, the movements are more often seeking participation and an effort to steer the movements so that the generalization that is often made, oh, the state is somehow in decline, is a general, and maybe that's a good thing, say people at the LSE sometimes, um, is a good, is an observation about certain states, possibly dubious even then, but an observation about some states in the global north, not the state in some sort of trans-universal way. Okay, um, can I have um, some more questions, please? So um, why, don't, why don't I take uh, this gentleman here, and was there a woman up the back there? You point at the woman in the first row of the balcony? Is that where you're pointing? Yes, this person here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm a general course student here at LSE. I'm wondering, you said that the biggest achievement of movements is to redefine institutions in terms of cultural change. Um, so in your capacity as director, you're automatically part of that redefinition. And so... I hate it. I'm the power structure instead of the movement. It's really hard to get used to. So I guess with that power, uh, what are you trying to change with regard to the larger social movement with regards to the students of tomorrow here at LSE? More or less, I'm embracing the web's vision that the LSE has a public role to play through our teaching, through our research, and in other ways of reaching out into the broader public. And that public role is driven by trying to make a better society. 
so that we have a, if you will, more pure academic sort of face, and we say, oh, we're highly ranked, and we do the ref, and we um, have a financial face, and we're solvent, but our purpose here is in large part to try to make a better society, and to do that in ways that are made more effective and better guided by the production of knowledge. By research, by the sharing of that knowledge through teaching, we enable this process of social change, and we don't only enable it by producing technocratic experts who can get jobs, we enable it by producing people who can participate in social movements and the public sphere to change the culture. Yeah, hi, I'm Andrea, I'm alumni. I was here 10 years ago doing social policy, and I just wanted to um, be a bit critical, if I may, actually. Sure, good. Um, yeah. It's in the spirit of the theme. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'm usually a bit more vocal, but I'm knackered. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> about your question about the state and its role and so on, I would suggest, um, let me just come out and say straight away, I have been involved with the Occupy movement since day one in London, and I'm a single parent, and my child, actually, is like that little girl on your screen right now at this point. So... Um, I think that what we're talking about is alternative states. If the state isn't going to have the same kind of power in this country, we're talking about alternative states there and alternative ways of doing society. But I do want to say to you that I think you've been a little bit unfair about Occupy because actually um, I, I was involved with the working group that did welfare and I want to say to you today and people all around the world that they deserve a huge amount of congratulations, that movement, because actually they managed to integrate some of the most damaged people on the planet. I'm a drug worker, and I have a, a history of my own. The fact that I'm alive is a miracle. Um, and, you know, if they did absolutely nothing else, that in itself would be some achievement. But in this country, they've had Andy Haldane come out and say we were loud, we were vociferous, we were persuasive, and we were right. So I think, frankly, um, to say that we are ephemeral and so on and so on is a little... But anyway, you may have just kind of played devil's advocate, which I'm really grateful for, because now I'm doing this, and that's all I've got to say. Thank you. Thanks very much. I think we ought to applaud. I think you ought to sort of thank, because I think Occupy has done important work. But I will also stick to the ephemeral claim. That is, I think that protest movements, and I meant in every one of these protest movements, do important work. I think in Bahrain, they're going to be defeated in Bahrain, right? One of those was the Pearl Roundabout in Bahrain, one of those early slides. They are going to lose in the sense of the immediate struggle. That doesn't mean they won't turn out to be part of a struggle for eventual democracy. It means that that's not going to happen next week or next year, and that the immediate force, the combined force of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, backed up by U.S. military power, they're not going to win this struggle right now. And I think the same is true of Occupy. There are victories. There are victories, as you described, there are victories in people's personal lives. There are victories in group solidarity. There are the introduction of new tactics, whether it's the human megaphone from the New York version of it, or the particular way of playing off the public space in front of St. Paul's in London. There are successes, but this is not toppling the British state next week, and it does not have the organizational capacity to deliver its own welfare system on a large scale. It is ephemeral in the sense that it is a moment in a larger movement. And if the way we think about Occupy is completely to um, 
be enthusiastic about the success in the moment and to forget that it's part of a bigger movement, we don't do it justice, right? And that's not just Occupy, that's all these movements. The anti-slavery movement that took 100 years. These movements, right, have their impact and their success and a large part of their meaning by connecting the immediate experiential moment of participation to a longer history that often can only be narrated in reverse, right? Um, that is, Mary Wollstonecraft couldn't have told you what place she was going to have in the women's movement when she wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women. Um, and that, that linking of the experience of being with other people participating in successful social life, and I'll stick to Occupy, but it would be true in Barcelona, be true in other places, is an experience of making society work on a relatively small scale in a different way. And the long story that it is potentially linked to that we will only be able to narrate after it's happened is the connection of that relatively short period of things to a much longer history. But what I want to suggest is that that's not something we totally control. It's not the ideology of any one movement. It's several things going on at the same time, sometimes reinforcing each other in a larger field of movements that makes that. But we need to watch out for seeing only the very short-term immediate experience, not because it makes us over-optimistic, though it can make us think, oh, Occupy is succeeding completely, but because it makes us pessimistic. If I wasn't clear about that, maybe now. The danger of that is when that short-term mobilization fades, people think that the story's over. And it's crucial right, not to think that the story's over, that the space between movements, the space between waves of activism is crucial. The memory, the narrative, the connection, because all of the big social change, the dramatic restructuring, takes place over a longer period of time. And it's part of what the immediate events, like the occupation, give to us is the chance to participate in that and feel that we're a part of it. So if we think it's all about the here and now, we miss part of what we're being given as an opportunity in that. So I hope that that at least connects somewhat to the experience. Okay. Um, look, I'm sorry. It's, it's past eight, and I know we my really fault. should it's my fault. Um, stop. I, I just want to make uh, two points before we finish. Um, the, the first is, is a practical point to remind you again that um, Craig Calhoun's book is on sale, and, and I believe he's happy to sit here and sign <laughs> copies for you um, if you would like uh, that to happen. And the second is I'd, I'd just like to thank you myself for the contribution you've made to our series. I mean... He's given us a beautifully illustrated talk, you know, rich with a whole wide range of historical references. He doesn't shy away from making general claims, and he's left us, I think, with the rather encouraging idea that thinking about social movements is really a way about thinking about how to improve society and even about thinking about thinking about how to improve society. So on that note, I'd like you to join me in thanking Professor Calvin again for his time.